I'm ready. I'm ready to do this, huh? Me too. All right. Where are all the Parshendi women at? I don't know. Where are all the Parshendi women at? Where the Parshendi women at? I thought there was a punchline. There's no punchline. Legitimate inquiry. It just crossed my mind. They can't all be shopping. They could be. You don't know what they have in that tower. I don't. It's a, it's a giant mall. And that's why they're fighting so hard to defend it. <laughs> we are fighting for capitalism. Fuck you, Alethi bastards. We will be the only ones to get these shoes. Not my Nordstrom's. That's right. The tower The tower's not really a tower. It's just one of those like seven-story malls that goes around and around, but it's only got like four stores on each floor. Oh, you're making me tingle. <laughs> Welcome to the Duke and Duchess podcast. Welcome. I'm Liz. I'm the Duchess. I'm Chad, and I don't know where the Parshendi women are. Maybe we'll find out in episode 69. Oh, man. But that is not this episode. <laughs> we are here in episode 68. We are covering chapters 46 through 51 of The Way of Kings by Brandon Sanderson. We are. That is what we are, in fact, doing. What are we covering next week? Next book club, we will be covering interludes 7 through 9, and then chapters 52 through 55. Why don't you lay our spoiler policy out there? Fantastic. So the spoiler policy is very simply, Liz has read the books, read them multiple times, knows all the stuff that's going to happen, all the ins, all the outs, all the wherefers. I have never read this stuff. So I have not read past chapter 51, and therefore we will not spoil anything past chapter 51 of The Way of Kings. Seriously, in the middle of last week, like completely out of the blue, I'm like, I'm 700 pages into this book. I can't believe it just crossed my mind. Where are the Parshendi women at? Why is it only men? To be fair, we've only seen their fighting forces. And again, we talked about this a little bit when we were questioning why don't the Alethi know more about the Parshendi? And I said, well, it's not like there's Parshendi villages or civilians wandering around. All right. Are there Parshman women? I would assume that there are female Parshmen. However, they would probably also be called Parshmen, though it's hard to say. We don't know. They're referred to as, the Parshmen are referred to as, not as he or she. They're referred to as it. (sighs) Really like animals. Is it, yeah, is it like a dog where you got to be really nosy to tell if your neighbor's dog is a boy or a girl? (laughs) I don't know. That's a really good question. What you got going on under that loincloth? Come here, Parshman. Oh, this is not going in a good direction. (laughs) I'm just, 
like I'm stunned that we're this deep into it. I get what you're saying about the Parshendi. Right. But I feel like no Parshman women have been mentioned either. And I'm trying to decide, is this some sort of weird asexual reproduction thing going on? Or have I just not been paying attention? No, there's definitely not been anything like that mentioned. All right. I'm... I'm reluctantly ready to move on. I'm just li- letting you know that 25% of my brain over the last week has been devoted to this question. And so that's stewing. That's, that's percolating there. Yes. Well, let I, me know if you come up with anything. Oh, no. I have no answer. <laughs> I am only here to question and make fun of shit. That's my role. Yes, sir. All right. That is what I do. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's get into the chapters. Let's. Chapter 46 is called Child of Tanavast. In this chapter, Kaladin is dreaming that he is the high storm. In his dream, he zooms around the continent, giving us a peek at the massive hunk of stone that is Roshar. He catches a glimpse of Seth standing over two corpses in a palace with a long, thin sword in his hand. A voice speaks to him, calling him a child of Tanavast and telling him that odium reigns. He wakes up in the barracks with half of Bridge 4 trying to hold him down. Apparently, he was trying to go into the storm like some kind of Alethi high prince whose name rhymes with Falinar. <laughs> Bridge 4 gets a new member, a Parshman who Kaladin names Shen. The rest of the crew isn't happy, but Kaladin insists that Shen be treated like one of them. On a walk through the camp, Kaladin runs across a light-eyed officer beating a prostitute. But before he can intervene, Adolin and his men jump into the rescue with his shiny, dripping, enormous <laughs> shard blade. He needs to go get that checked out. When it was like, I don't know, for some reason, even though it's been described as this before, when Adolin like pulls it out and it's like, and things are dripping from the end and it's like long, sinuous length dripping with moisture. I was like, hmm. That's the first time. That's a metaphor. That's the first time I noticed it. I mean. It was a, it was a little crazy. It's a little obvious. I have a theory about why it's dripping. Why? Are yeah. you going to save it for theories or are you going to let me know now? Well, uh, it's because, you know, when, when Dalinar is not looking, he's been putting it in too many Parshendi whores. Are there Parshendi whores? I mean, have we <laughs> didn't are mean, coming I'm, back around to that? It's not, not what I meant. It's not what you meant. No, I meant Alethi. Alethi <laughs> prostitutes. He's got the drip. You know. And he's Adolin, murdering prostitutes. Adolin it's really sick. turned down the Alethi prostitute. Yeah, he did. He did. No, I do have a serious theory, but I'll save it for. I'll save it for serious theory time. So a lot happens in this chapter. I'm going through the sketching out my plot summary. And I was like, oh, and then this. And then I kept thinking I was done. I was like, oh, no, then this thing happened. Yeah, this was a long chapter. I took a ton of notes in this chapter. I also spent a long time with a map of Roshar trying to trace everywhere that he goes. So should we start off with the vision? Uh, yeah, I think let's unpack that. A I little think bit. let's do that. Yeah. I thought it was interesting. Roshar is described as an ocean of rock. And you just it just kind of hit me reading it this time that this entire continent 
has no grass. It's all, I mean, they're on the shattered plains and it's easy to, to picture, you know, a section of the geography being this rocky landscape, but it is the entire planet. And that just kind yeah. of like blew my mind, you know? No, it's actually one of the first things I noticed when I looked at the map is it look the map itself of the continent looks like it was like liquid that got frozen suddenly in the middle of like something happening. It looks like you took a top and spun it and all this stuff was kind of coming off of it and then it froze. That's an interesting observation. I've never thought of it that way before. It's true though. Yeah, because all the islands, you know, kind of are coming off of these long peninsulas, you know, but they and they all sort of twist clockwise. You know, they all have this sort of yeah. clockwise spiraling as though the island was like spun counterclockwise and then suddenly frozen in time. You know, and the different cities and mountains, there are parts where it looks like like somebody hit water or caused it to ripple and then froze it. And that's where you get some of these weird natural rock formations. It's I don't know if that's just something artistic, though I suspect, suspect it's not. And then we have the Shattered Plains, which are described as looking like something large hit them in the center. That and is, shattered them, I guess. I mean, it makes sense. So that's pretty interesting. So when Kaladin's flying over the plains, he also sees a large plateau at the center with lights mm-hmm. on it, uh, assuming that someone lives there. We kind of assume that that's the tower that's been described as being the largest plateau on the Shattered Plains. And that the eastern side have plateaus that are nearly worn away into tall, spindly towers. And that it's, it's the symmetry, too, really struck me, that everything is exactly symmetrical. Yeah, and there appears to be a lot of that in the different cityscapes. Yeah, as we talked about, like, the right. the cymatics uh, last time and how it, you know, reflects that. And so many of these cities are built up around these unusual rocky outcroppings. Right, natural formations. Yeah, now, it's hard to know what the hell that means because in this book we have so many random things that get dropped on us like Tanavast and Odium and when something like that pops up I usually will go into the nook and I'll look to see if it's come up before. Right. No, it hasn't. <laughs> so there's no there's no reason for me to have been able to guess what Tanavast means right. you know, or what Odium means. But I will tell you, Brandon Sanderson tends to drop a name or a concept and then come back. Good. Things do come back. Because I'd so be that's why we just kind of like he didn't. Well, a lot of authors don't. A lot of authors true, yeah. try to do what Brandon Sanderson does and just don't. I don't know if Brandon Sanderson just has way better continuity editors or he's just. He's I got think a he wall just has like red yarn everywhere. I think he might have a yarn wall or he's possibly a cyborg. I've said that for years. He might be. He might be a cyborg. I seriously think that maybe he just kind of plugs himself. And then, by the way, that is not that is a compliment of the highest order coming from me because I fantasize about being a cyborg probably too much. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right. Interesting. I did not but know I that. I think okay. he just probably plugs himself in for like an hour every day and then he's good. Can you imagine that, how awesome would that be? That would be pretty awesome. Or there's really seven Brandon Sandersons <laughs> and they're just not allowed to be seen together. <laughs> See, now you're down the rabbit hole. I could have <laughs> I could have believed Cyborg. but like You do not want to be his wife. I'm not going to clones. <laughs> Oh, goodness. So in the vision, okay, so Kaladin's in this high storm. We'll go back to that. He goes over Alethkar. He sees Kolinar. And then he goes over the Horn Eater Peaks. He goes to what we assume is Makabaki, because uh, he, which he describes uh, okay. as right. a, well, I'm just telling you. Okay. Because mm-hmm. I did the same thing, mm-hmm. um, which is where Sigzel is from. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Which he describes as a hinterland of rippled stone. So I thought it was interesting before he gets to Azish. Or Azish. Azish, okay. Before he gets there, he crosses over the Horn Eater Peaks, and there he says that he sees all these armies laid out. He is west of Alethkar. He's either in Jakaved or Tubaila, and that's where he sees all these wagon trains and soldier camps and things dug in, which makes me wonder, is there some sort of war going on between Jakoved and Tubaila, or are they preparing to invade Alothkar? Like, what's there's something going on there. I don't think that was accidental. Well, let me stop you just for a second. I don't have my book in front of me, Mm -hmm. but my impression when reading this was that he's not describing a massive armies all piled together in one spot. Just as he's going, there are he sees armies everywhere, everywhere he yeah, goes, that, yeah, in that, different places. Not yeah, that like could in very well be. Yeah. one spot, like there's going to be a giant conflagration just as he's going. And then, you know, as he moves on, he sees fewer and fewer. Certain places seem more peaceful, but just that kind of everywhere he looks, there's there's battles. Okay. That was my perception. But as he's going through, he gets drawn to a strange city which I believe is somewhere in Erie. Well, it sounds like it. Yeah, because... uh, What is the the name of the country? Erie. I think that's right, yeah. Yeah. Because he mentions the people with the blue vein skin. Yeah, he goes over that. And then the people in the... In the castle and all have golden hair that are, yeah. men- that are mentioned. Correct. And that's where we see Seth yes. and the city. But I could not tell where in Erie he was. And I looked. Right. I think it's a strange city. You know, I went back into the chapter called Cymatics where mm-hmm. Capsule was describing some of the cities and their shape. And I thought, oh, maybe. But it, none of them match the description of this city. Yeah, I couldn't find anything that that seemed to reference it in any particular way. And I also looked for, have there been other references to the red mosaic tiles that were mentioned? There's not. And then Kaladin meets the face of Bo again. He does. Stormfather representing. Big old Skyface. Yeah. And big old Skyface says to Kaladin, child of Tanavast, child of honor, child of one long since departed. The oath pact was shattered. Men ride the storms no longer. Odium comes, most dangerous of all the 16. And then when Kaladin asks him, why, why, are, why do we all have to fight? What is going on here? Not like, hey, who are you? Why are you a giant face in the sky? But whatever, we'll leave that. Skyface answers, Odium reigns. Just another little layer for you. 
Just another little. Just put a pin in it. I promise it all. It's like baklava. Layers like and layers. All these tasty, beautiful delicious pastry. Delicious layers. Dates, nuts. Mm-hmm. I like baklava. Me too. You want to go get some baklava? I kind of want some baklava. It's late. Let's go though. get some baklava. <laughs> oh my goodness. That was some tasty baklava. Now you're just making it worse. We didn't actually have any. We could have. They don't have to know that. What are you doing, Duchess? I'm being honest. (laughs) That imaginary baklava not good enough for you? Hey, I can pretend a lot of things, okay? (laughs) It's true. It's true. You can. You can. Baklava is where I draw the line. (laughs) There's some distances you won't go. What I thought was the most interesting, other than the whole geographical tour of Roshar that we went on, is... Uh, I think it was right before he saw, it was either right before he saw Seth or right before he saw the face of Bo. He went through a a place where he saw lights, all these random lights, Mm -hmm. and these spherical bubbles of light that vibrated with spikes and troughs. Almost like the inverse of what Shallan saw when she, quote, soul cast, unquote. That is an extremely good observation. Because she saw all these dark spheres, like bubbles, and like almost like a sea of them in waves. So he's seeing it sort of in the daytime, and it's a light version of the same thing. Makes me feel like some of what's happening is almost like like a you're not this you may not get this reference, but almost like what's happening in Stranger Things with the Upside Down. So almost like there's another side of this, like an inverse side of this world, like a bizarro Rishar, where things cross over back and forth. Holy crap. That's a good observation. I don't think I've seen that. You haven't seen Stranger Things. I have not seen Stranger because Things. Because it's scary and you won't watch it. I, I have been thinking about watching it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm working my way up. You don't have to watch Stranger Things. No, but it that's just the reference that uh, yeah, that I thought of like especially considering the placement of these because it was the end of the last section that mm-hmm. we had this and he does this a lot where he'll have something come up that hints at something. Mm-hmm. And then in the next section or the next chapter you get the next piece of that puzzle. So I can't help but think those two things are related and that maybe one of the fantasy elements here is the crossover between these kind of dark side, light side type things. Hmm. All right. Like the way your brain works. We'll see. Figure out where those Parshendi women are at and then we can... uh, They're all on the dark side. They're all on the dark side. (laughs) So, Odium and Tanavast are new names. Yes. No reference to them, but the Oath Pact is not new. Correct. So, I I went back and I read through the prelude again, which is where it 
comes up. Um, and I had I had to refresh my memory because I didn't really remember what the Oath Pact was. And it seems to be that if these 10 poor son of a bitches allow themselves to be tortured endlessly, right. that it will keep the bad guy from showing up. Right. And it keeps the... Desolations. Desolations, thank you. Keeps the desolations away. So one of the things that they talk about is, you know, Kalak and whatever, the gen of whatever, you know, he says, maybe that will be enough. Maybe that will be enough to keep the oath pack intact. Well, apparently it ain't. Because he's reigning. Because Odium reigns. He seems to be that bad guy. (laughs) Tells me some desolations are afoot. Time to get some damn monsters up in here. (laughs) I'm ready for monsters. Giant Larry the Lobster wasn't enough for you? No. Chasm Friends weren't enough for you? No. I got Chasm Friends all around town. They don't scare me anymore. I'm not 14. I used to be a little intimidated when I was 14 years old, but now I'm, I'm hip with the Chasm Friend. Because So think about this world. Like This is a high magic world. Right. Not that we're, you know... Even in this like limited role where they don't seem to understand everything, they're still manufacturing shit out of magic dust, right? Just right. Like fairy dust right. that they're just throwing up, and they're like, "Ooh, it's food," you know, like right. Uh, right. So, it, even in this limited state, it's still a very high magic world, right? right. Crazy ass shit going on. Chasm friends aside, now it's time to get some fucking monsters up in here. Desolation, desolation. (laughs) I'm ready for that shit to happen. You know what I call the desolation? (laughs) Having sword, the couch is shaking. (laughs) You know what I call the desolation? What? My 20s. Oh, God, I agree. (laughs) I agree so hard with that statement. Early 20s? With your early 20s. Absolutely. The (laughs) desolation. That was some shit. (laughs) Hey, I was around for your early 20s, too. So, you know, cuts both ways, Duchess. Let's talk about Sigzel. Sure, sure. Or any of the characters, really. Pick a character. I I got some some words to say about Sigzel. 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 Sizzle sounds better, but it's Sigzle. It's Sigzle? Okay. Yeah. All right. So Kaladin wakes up. Okay, we've just gotten through like two pages of this chapter. It was a really big two pages. Yeah, it really was. So, But Kaladin wakes up, and there's a group of Bridge Ford trying to hold him down. What? What? Sorry, I just... <laughs> This is not going to translate, but I but we stopped the podcast. So you remember like the Bob Dylan songs, Bob Dylan's like talking blues and like Bob Dylan's 37th dream. Mm-hmm. And he sits there and he's like, there was a bear and doom, like I just pictured Kaladin with like a banjo being like, 
Went over them horny to pike dong bum pick a dum pick a ding pick a dum bum bum. There was war camps everywhere to bum tick a bean tick a pick a down do 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 bum bing. That's just. I got it. I appreciate it. Okay, thank you. All right. Thank you. <laughs> anyway. Please continue. <laughs> Callan wakes up and. Uh, Half of Bridge Four is trying to hold him down for his own safety, and uh, Sigzel is not in that half that was trying to keep him from. He's not annihilating himself. He might be the only one there with any, with his brains about him. <laughs> he, I like I like this character, <laughs> right? You know, he's like, "You guys are being idiots. I'm going to walk away now. I'm just going to sit over here with my back against the wall." Wait for everyone to regain their sentences. <laughs> when you dumbasses get yourselves together, I'll be over here with the mature people by myself. Sigzel won't let you copy his homework. No, don't look over his test. It's not, not, he is not going to give you the answers on the Scantron. <laughs> no way. Cannot borrow his number two pencil. You should have brought your own. Should have brought your damn pencil. So we've met Sigzel a couple of times. Obviously, he's part of Bridge Four, but he's been mentioned, and he always seems to kind of come in with a little tidbit of knowledge. You know, when Teft was bringing up the uh, the words of the Radiance, Sigzel knew what they were, and he they others have mentioned that he talks like an educated person, talks like a light eyes. So Rock today calls Sigzel a world singer. He says, I've met your kind before. Mm -hmm. Sigzel says, oh, what I, there's lots of us around, lots of Azish people around. And and Rock says, no, I mean a a world singer, right? He says that they're a group of people that, that feel like they need to travel to each kingdom and tell the people there about what people are like in other kingdoms. And Sigzel gets all in a huff. And he, he just turns around and walks away. Storms off. So we don't know what's up with that. So I had, uh, that was something I made a comment about as well. I have some notes here about it. Yeah. So it's interesting to me, we have World Singer. Earlier, we have reference to Dawn Singers. Mm-hmm. And we also reference music with the Parshendi and them talking about where are the Parshman's music and how they have weird songs that they do. So, so now I've got like three little references to singing in music. And so I'm thinking, okay, this is something I need to start paying more attention to. The other thing I thought of is I feel like this world singer, it kind of reminds me of going back to one of Dalinar's visions when he saw the Radiance and they said, okay, this is our job in Alethkar is, you know, we're, we're the protectors. We fly around and we protect everybody and we chase the desolations away. But all the different kingdoms have their different responsibilities. And so I sort of feel like the Azish are, were like the cultural ambassadors in that ancient world. And like that was one of their roles. You know, and other countries had other roles, you know. Um, and the Alethi were the, the bullies. I mean, the protectors of of the continent, you know. So I feel like that's probably a holdover from that. But why he gets so up in arms about it and kind of storms off, I don't know. That's some really good thoughts. I don't know. 
So I had some notes too about, we learned a little bit about Moash. We find out that he signed up to be a soldier because he wanted to win a shard blade. But rather than getting trained as a spearman or made a useful soldier, he is thrown into the bridge cruise. So he's pretty bitter, angry individual. When the, the gang is, they're out there, they're taking their shower in the rain. And Kaladin is asked whether he would want to throw the light eyes down and take their place. And Kaladin's like, no, I don't want to be anything like them. I mean, I'll throw them down, but then y'all can just figure it out. <laughs> I, I don't want anything to do with power. Yeah. And uh, Moash says, well, I would, heck, I would do it. And he, he tells them that he's going to change the world. And then Kaladin is really wrestling with this idea that he's cursed. That's something that we see in chapter after chapter with him. And it seems to be kind of rising to a peak, this crisis, this idea that um, that he's cursed to survive every time. When everyone around him dies, he always survives over and over again. Yeah, and it's consistent with what we've seen in his story right. so far. You know, and, and when he first becomes a slave, he's listing off all the people who have died around him. And so this seems like the next progression in that, you know, particular song, the particular emo song, you know, that he's going to sing. <laughs> oh, I think it's important to note, too. He has like a little mini conversation with Syl as he's walking. And he's wrestling with the idea of the Almighty. Is the Almighty there? Is he not there? Is there, you know, he's like, I'm not even sure if the Almighty's there, but I wonder if there is some other kind of malevolent supernatural force at work. Me too. And uh, he, he asks Syl if she's heard the name Odium. Yeah. And she like, she hisses at him and runs away. And he can't get her back. Yeah. However... So, yeah, I noticed that as well. But again, we have no idea. Right. No. Just a tidbit. Yeah. Except you can sort of extrapolate that Odium is not a good guy. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, it's like Voldemort, you know. Yeah. (laughs) He who should not be named. But she does come back around later. Right. And we don't really get the follow-up of him asking Hey, uh, what's the deal with he who shall not be named? Why did you... Chad, if a woman hisses at you and literally runs away, you don't bring that up again. All I'm right. just saying. F- fair point. Fair fair point. I've never learned that lesson. <laughs> I know. Clearly never learned that lesson. I know. That would have been the next thing I asked. But no, seriously. But no, really. <laughs> Why are you mad? Why are you so mad? I don't get Why? it. Okay. <laughs> oh, so anyway. the, the next thing that we have is Bridge 4 gets another new soldier or new bridge bridgeman. Yes. And it turns out to be a Parshman. Creatively named Shen. Hey, Parshi. <laughs> Uh, what should we name you? Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, not Parshen. Parsh- Shen. 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 <laughs> well, 
Well, it's interesting because this chapter really um, speaks to the theme of acceptance. And Kaladin at first is not happy to have a, a parchment on his crew. But when he sees the other one, the other men kind of being like, what, what is this, you know, and complaining about him, he realizes, wow, there's something lower in this world than a bridgeman, a parchment bridgeman. And he decides right there, you know what? We're accepting this guy. And he's like, nope, he's bridge four. We're treating him just like anyone else. He's going to be part of our chasm plot. Just that's what we're doing. We're rolling with it. Yeah. I thought it was interesting to contrast that with his lack of acceptance and his judgment of Adolin. Hmm. When Adolin comes in and um, saves the prostitute, he um, right away is like, oh, psh, what a poser. Yeah. <laughs> So let's talk about Adolin's appearance. I, I do I do find it interesting that Brandon Sanderson keeps sort of having these characters show up and not naming them, like Seth and the Vision and Adolin right. here. Because how would Kaladin... Because of course he would know it, right? Know their name. But it's also super obvious who they are. You right. Know, to, you, to you, the reader, it's super obvious. Kaladin goes, he's out walking around, he sees this incident, Adolin rescues this prostitute, and and uh, what I thought was interesting was the same thing we mentioned earlier, which is that he pulls out his shard blade and it's dripping with condensation. Sinuous. Sin- That's a good T- word. Turgid. <laughs> turgid and drippy. <laughs> so, I have a theory about it. Ooh. So where does a shard blade go? Where does a shard blade go? I think it goes to that world on the other side where things are dark. If things are dark, there's no sun, shit'll get cold. I think shards maybe come from some otherworldly thing, otherworldly place. It would also make sense that there would be something like that because it seems like there are multiple planets in the Cosmere and people jump around between them. There's not spaceships, so there's got to be some sort of gateways or traveling somehow, right? So I'm thinking that the shard inside the shard blade itself is something that comes from this otherworldly place, so it's constantly cold. When it comes into the current world, it's going to have condensation, could also just be that it's like taking one out of the freezer <laughs> and it's turgid and drippy it's... like you would be <laughs> like you would be like you would be you know i don't know every time i take my shard blade out of the freezer it's like a dagger though <laughs> it's like really small <laughs> stubby As the battle goes on, it it gets bigger, you know. I mean, uh, yeah, sure. I mean, slightly below average, but I mean, but <laughs> it's perfectly adequate, right? Perfectly adequate. Listen, you don't. I mean, you don't want it to be too big. What are you trying to show off? I mean, shard blade is enough, don't you think? You don't have to be walking around with the biggest shard blade. What kind of a jackass are you, Chad? Listen, I already lied about Bob, Bob, Bob once today. 
So I think another theme, and this is the last note that I had for this chapter that's really important here, is the idea of power and corruption. The men are all sitting around talking about what they would do if they could cast the light eyes down. And Sigzel talks about a, a country called Babathanum. Babatharnum? Yeah, that's, yeah. Babatharnum. Let me say that again. Babatharnum. And in this country, the oldest person is the one who's the ruler, which you would think is a perfectly fair system of government. However, there's a dynasty of people who have arranged it so that they are always the oldest people. <laughs> and they do this by killing anyone who gets old enough to challenge their authority. So what he says is, you know, no matter where you go, you're going to find someone who abuses their power. And as far as things go, you know, eye color, he says, is not the craziest system of government that yeah. he's seen. I also, I kind of just kind of liked Kaladin telling Teft that if we started rejecting Bridgman based on their looks, you'd be out. It's <laughs> a nice little zinger there. Well, I liked in that same conversation when they're talking about the parchment and he's like, he's going to tell him our plans. He's like, I've never heard a parchment put two words together. You think he's going to go tell him? Our plan, I don't think he could be a spy. He can't talk, you know. <laughs> Poor Shen. I had one more world-building note in Chapter 46. Okay. And that is a mention of someone, something called the Old Magic and the Night Watcher. Yeah. So just that's, I think this is the second time that's been mentioned. Definitely the so Old Magic. Just like put mm. a pin in that. It's another sticky layer. Another, I need another whole skein of yarn. Right. My goodness. (laughs) All right, chapter 47. Chapter 47 called Storm Blessings. It's a flashback chapter, and Kaladin is remembering his last day on the battlefield in Amaram's army. We watch him bribing someone to have Sen transferred. Wait, did we decide it was Sen or Ken? I said Sen. Sen. It's Sen. Okay. He's, he bribes someone to have Sen transferred, as well as to have his men prioritized in the surgery tent. We see his defense of Sen from, from his perspective, from Kaladin's perspective this time. And when a shard bearer comes in the battle and kills all but four of his men and is about to kill Amaram, Kaladin pulls out his big dick energy and kills <laughs> him, winning his blade and plate. He can't bring himself to actually take the blade, however. He walks off the battlefield after giving the blade to his men. Is that why I'm so tired all have the time? Have you heard this phrase, big dick energy? Yeah. B-D-E you have? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, people want to get down on millennials and stuff and all, but I love millennials. Like, they're, they're good creative. at selfies, <laughs> and they have the best acronyms. Yeah. What's another one that, that we heard recently? LTA? It stands for lunchtime anal. Oh, yeah. Like, how has this become a thing that needs an acronym? But I feel like that was less a millennial thing and just like a very small group of millennials <laughs> that we are very closely related to. I don't think that's like a... Millennials, chime in. <laughs> Is lunchtime anal really a thing? <laughs> Old people want to know. <laughs> so, <laughs> but when we were young, we wanted to like burn down the man and like you know cause rebellion and they just want to like have lunchtime butt sex like i'm not i'm not sure we chose the right generation <laughs> like <laughs> well big dick energy is my new favorite 
favorite phrase. I'm going to use it. All I had a millennial friend use it on Facebook. And I was like, using that at the next parent-teacher conference. <laughs> yeah, I don't think you're going <laughs> to. I won't. I'm just kidding. I th- I think you're all I'd be cooler if I did, though. (laughs) I think you're all show and no grow over there when it comes to the big dick energy. (laughs) It's true. So I I just felt like this is a really well-written chapter. We get so much foreshadowing of, like, Kaladin's death wish that he has over and over. We see a glimpse of Syl, I think. Or or some sort of windspread. Some sort of windspread, but I think it's significant we know that Syl has been following him since yeah. he was in the army. And as he's walking past the surgery tent, a windspread comes by and sticks his pouch to his hand. Yeah. And even at the, at the very end, like the way the whole tip of the sphere, uh, the spear falls down mm-hmm. and lands in his hand. Mm-hmm. It's a that little, badass, it is badass. It? But I also thought, I mean, he wouldn't have necessarily seen it. Could you know? Could she have been there, sort of, mm-hmm. you know, guiding that process a little bit? And we also just get a revisiting of his. You know, as he's walking past the surgery tent, he's kind of thinking back and revisiting his not only his past as a surgeon's assistant, but his whole quandary of can I kill? Can I save people by killing? And we just see the the beginning of his mindset to protect his squad first and to win second. Yeah, we also get to see him sort of at his, this has been sort of his peak moment so his far. His most storm-blessed. Yeah, his most storm-blessy, for sure. He's so storm-blessy. So also blessy. But, you know, it it's him when he's full of confidence and cool, you know, full of bravado, and he's got all these people to respect him, so. B-D-E. I, I guess so. I mean, I'm always tired. I don't know what that says. <laughs> And we start this chapter with Kaladin um, playing with the rock, a bit of quartz. And we think it's the the last one that Tien gave him. That's what it and seems. He's, yeah. he's sitting mm-hmm. there thinking about his brother. So we also find out that it's been four years, but he's decided to reenlist. And that he sent a brief letter home to his parents telling them what happened and that he's not coming home. And that they never wrote him anything back. You're shaking your head like you're like, like what an asshole. That's just sad. Well, I do I do sort of think it's kind of an asshole move. No, I, I mean... I mean, it doesn't matter because he never really got the chance to kind of make that right. choice anyway. Uh, um, but to take responsibility for his brother's death, which we don't we don't know yet how his brother died. I have a theory about it, but but I'm fairly confident that it wasn't at it wasn't at Kaladin's hand. Right. So he's going to take you know, responsibility for that. They've already lost one son, so he's going to once again remove the possibility of them reuniting with their only child at that point. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, he doesn't he doesn't want to be a, ashamed and feel bad and deal with his big boy feelings. Well, you know, this is obviously a very broken individual. This is someone who already struggled with dark moods and you know we see him when he walks past the surgery tent ruminating that he you know yes probably he could have gone and become an assistant there um, but he doesn't feel like he deserves that life anymore and I, I feel like we see this is such a an important 
moment for this character, this, well, dealing with his brother's death, that this is the root of his desire to protect people through killing. And I feel like through this whole section that we read, we see that an emphasis on that idea over and over. He is trying to somehow make up for this decision that he made to join the army, to become a killer in order to protect his brother. And he's trying to justify that. But every time he tries, the people that he is trying to protect get killed, not because of anything he did, yeah. but he can't accept that. And he feels like if he can just save one group, then maybe it's going to heal that brokenness. Also, he's 19. And there's very few things in this world more self-absorbed than a 19-year-old. It's so true. God, it's true. Yes. So let's talk about Amaram. Black Betty? B- Amaram. I just can't hear the word Amaram now without going, whoa, Black Betty, Amaram. Every time I read it, it breaks the mood. I don't get, is that a song? Yeah. Okay. That would that would be disturbing, yeah. It is, it's disturbing. So he's Black Betty now. <laughs> so, That's his name. So Kaladin is uh, walking around kind of thinking about Amaram. And that he still trusts him. Out of all the light eyes, Amaram is the last one that he trusts. And uh, because he treated Kaladin's father well, and he speaks with respect even to lowly spearmen. And he's saying, you know, he's he's a light eyes like Dalinar and Sadius, the only light eyes that ever showed a modicum of humanity. Yeah, I don't have a lot of notes until we get to the actual fight. Well, let's talk about the fight because it was pretty bad donkey. It was It was bad donkey for sure. So the first note I have is when Sen dies, and he he's in his um his death throes. Yeah, he has one of these little speeches, whatever you want mm-hmm. to call it. Uh, interesting that they are not very close to the shattered plains, which I thought at one point I think I theorized that it was only when people were dying on the Shattered Plains that they were saying that. Clearly, not the case. But Sen says, the Black Piper in the night, he plays a tune that no man can hear. So he plays a lot of like sharp 11s, tritone substitution. You got to listen to the notes he's not playing. Yes, yes, you're very smart at music. I mean, (laughs) he wouldn't be anywhere without his rhythm section. I think he's taking too much credit. <laughs> now, clearly, this Black Piper is this odium cat. Probably. I mean, Miles Davis said he didn't. Ever, he never knew how to end a solo. He just played and played and played and played like John Coltrane. And then we have this shard bearer show up in the battle opposite Black Betty, out of nowhere, where there's no, there's like there does not seem to be any. Thing really politically at value here and this cat shows up we have no idea why like what the hell's going on it wasn't just so there could be a cool story point mm-hmm. but at this point we have no real ability to guess why 
But the one thing the fight also does when we we see this shard bear, it gives you a sense of just how freaking impossible it would be to try to stand up against one of these guys. Right. Right. They're in virtually impenetrable armor. And, you know, they're swinging around the sword that basically has no weight to it all, at mm-hmm. all, cuts through any armor like it's air. I mean, he's just got to swing it around like a stick and he's just killing And, and it's like six feet long. Yeah. Like, you know, it's like- You can't a, even get close. Yeah. You know. So, yeah, I mean, he's just whipping it around and like, you don't have to be- talented or good you just not when you've got a a suit of armor that enhances your strength and speed as well yeah it's crazy like it's impossible to compete with these guys it'd be like going up against somebody like squatting in a full suit straps up knees wrapped they're squatting two inches above parallel you got to go raw and walk it out yourself exactly like that it's exactly like that Kaladin's got to try to take this guy down by his eye slit. So he tries to make this throw with a dagger. Freaking impossible throw. Mm -hmm. Not even Phil the Power Taylor is going to make this kind of throw. But he manages to, while throwing the knife, it bounces off the guy's mask, but freaking spear tip lands in his hand and it distracts the guy long enough for Kaladin to just continue his momentum and stab the cat in the eye. I'm just trying to throw as many really obscure references into this section as I possibly can. They don't seem obscure to me because I live with you. But and I feel like I've accomplished it. I think you probably did a good job. <laughs> I feel like no one's going to understand half of what just came out of my mouth for the last two or three minutes. Yeah, I mean, I just, I love the way Brandon Sanderson writes action scenes. I've said that from the beginning, I say it all the time. And this one really shines, in my opinion. I just love how you can really picture what's going on in a way that feels exciting, though. It's not... Yeah, I thought the fight and everything that happens right after the fight in this chapter, right up to him rejecting the shard blade, mm-hmm. really well done. Mm-hmm. I do wonder if there are people who, when he was like, no, I can't accept the shard blade, were like, like couldn't understand it. I think particularly if you're reading it quickly, yep, you, right. you get to that point and you're like, what? Fuck you. Take that. That's ridiculous. Why would you not take it? And for practical purposes, of course you would, right? Right. But I felt like that was a really kind of pivotal moment. I think some people are either going to understand it and other people are going to say, that's ludicrous. I can't buy that at all. But for me, it worked. No, I, I think it definitely works for this character. You know, and it's explained well. It's explained that, you know, yeah, yeah. for him, he's just watched this weapon kill most of his friends. Yeah. And, uh, you know, for him, it was never about even being the best soldier. It was about being able to protect his men. You know, it wasn't about glory. It wasn't about anything anything related to that so for him you know and he says that the sword represents everything that he had come to despise about the light eyes and just the ability to be able to kill anyone with impunity and just be untouchable and and he just doesn't want anything to do with that yeah i mean it made perfect sense to me i i suspect there are going to be some people who are going to struggle with that i'm curious to know if any of our listeners are listen to this and going, what? That's that's ludicrous. You right. Know, or struggled with it in reading it. 
But to me, it's a, yeah, it made it made perfect sense. Mm-hmm. Not what I expected to happen. Mm-hmm. But when it happened, I was like, yeah, 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 that makes sense. So chapter 48 is called Strawberry. I knew they were poisonous. I fucking knew it. <laughs> I knew they were no good. I told you, been telling for you for years, strawberries are no fucking good. They must have bought these strawberries from ShopRite because they fucking suck. <laughs> You're such a strawberry snob. I am a huge, I'm a fruit snob. You are. It's true. I don't deny it. I mean, other things too. No, I'm a but snob. fruit as well. <laughs> I'm, I'm a total snob. I'm not, I'm not going to sit here and act like I'm not. Right? Well, this, these two chapters with, with Shalon in this section that we read are some of my favorite um, parts of this book. I think this whole arc and how it all comes out, I really loved it. Um, this is one that I, I would just read over and over. I would kind of flip past to get to this part when I'm rereading. So, well, okay. So let's go to the plot yeah. summary. In this chapter, Shalon is in the hospital recovering from her, quote, accident. The symbol-headed creatures are still all around her invisible, but she's getting accustomed to them. She's visited by Teravangian and then by Yasna and Kabsul. And just when you thought Kabsul's creepy jam game couldn't get any creepier, (laughs) there turns out to be poison in the mix. Oh, it gets creepy. Shalan is forced to reveal the stolen soul caster so that Yasna can heal her from the poison. And as happens often in this book, everything goes black at the end. Yeah. I feel like this is the third chapter where it's been like, and then everything went black. Yeah, it does happen a lot. End scene. Not in a... um, it doesn't take away from the story at all. I no, just, I, I wouldn't. I and, don't think I'm so, writing no. plot recap after plot recap. I'm like, and then everything went black. And I think you again, you notice it probably right. more when you're doing that. Yeah. I felt like this whole section was a pretty effective bait and switch. And, mm-hmm. I, and I don't mean that in a negative way. Right. We've been led to believe for 700 pages that the whole soul caster thing, and I'm I'm dipping a little into the next chapter, but. We've, we're right. all caught up at this point, so we've led to believe this whole time that the defining point of conflict here is going to be that when Shalon gets outed for having the soul caster, they're going to chop her head off, right? Right. Like, or she's, you know, something horribly catastrophic is going to happen, and it turns out that the real danger through this whole section has not been Yasna. It's been Capsule the whole time. Fucking Jordan Catalano. You can't trust that fucker. Cannot trust him. Don't trust swarthy dudes carrying bread. <laughs> no good. Hey, baby. Yeah? Want some carbs? <laughs> <laughs> I promise it's not dusted with bone with bone breaker powder. Yeah. You listen, no, no man bringing around a plate of brownies has your best interest at heart. So the other thing I noted is Shalon says in here specifically about her old soul casting that she spoke to the soul of the goblet and says outright she gave the light from the sphere in the soul caster to the spren of the goblet. So Shalon starts, she's ruminating about what happened and she's going, okay. 
I visited another place. I spoke with the soul of the goblet. I gave the stormlight from the sphere to the spren of the goblet as a bribe to transform. And this is how she sees what happened. Yeah, now this, yeah, this is her interpretation of what happened. Right. So that does not mean it's right. technically accurate. Right. But that, but that is what she believes. I just thought it was interesting that, you know, she basically says outright, I took Stormlight, gave it to the Spren, bribed it to change. I'm like, oh. Mm-hmm. Seems very Dungeons and Dragons of you. Kind of does. But yeah, I thought that was interesting. So Tara Vangian might be my favorite character. Yeah, he's pretty awesome. I spent more time thinking about him this week than I probably should have. How so? Well, he's always been sort of cool. And like, he seems like one of the few characters in the book who is sort of grounded, not like overly dramatic. He's just like, I'm not trying to be more than I am. I'm already the king. I don't need to impress you. Mm-hmm. I'm just trying to be a good person. I built this hospital. He's a good, he's just a good, straightforward guy, right? It does cross my mind, though, that those are the guys in, like, the character who is just sort of like, just like a good, straightforward character, sometimes end up being, turning into Gandalf. Turning into Gandalf, how? So, like... Like, I think there's more to Teravangian, though I have no idea what. Mm-hmm. No, no idea what. But Teravangian, one, cool ass name. Mm-hmm. You're not you're not putting that on a throwaway character. He's going to stick around for a mm-hmm. while. Because if he was a throwaway character, his name would be Shed, Shed. or something like that, right? <laughs> um, but also the fact that he's such kind of a likable and straightforward character. Mm-hmm. Leads me to believe that he's going to be like a Scarpy type character, somebody mm-hmm. who you're going to find out later there's a lot more going on with this cat. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it's for good or whether it's like the maker and fables and it's bad. Right. Like, I, I don't, I have no idea. But I just started thinking that I had the thought Teravangian might be my favorite character. And then I started thinking, wait a minute. Anytime I have a thought like that, it's usually been about a character who ends up turning into a much bigger deal somewhere down the road. Mm-hmm. I have no idea. This guy could never show up again for all I know. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll put a pin in that one. Don't be poking Taravangian with your pins. <laughs> I mean, he's in a hospital, so if you have to do it, here's the place. <laughs> Poor Terry. Where do these people get enough sugar to make jam? Well, you don't know, do you? God, so many questions tonight. You know, it is interesting, though, because we've gotten little tidbits about the flora of Roshar. Mm -hmm. So we know that their grain comes from these lavish polyps. Yeah. And I think in this section, we even get an illustration of a lavish polyp. It looked like a big round ball and inside is filled with sort of a sandy substance and then there's these little grains in there so i assume they have some other kind of plant that has um functions as a sweetener 
I mean, we any, don't know. any kind of starch, I think, could probably be processed. They could also soul cast it. I don't know. But it but is it, so interesting that this, you know, this landscape is completely alien. Which is why you have to have soul casters to have a civilization at all. Because the the biology there, the, the ecology couldn't support all this life otherwise. You almost don't see anything like this outside of sci-fi, which I think true, makes yeah. it so interesting. Most fantasy novels have at least in like the plant and animal life, a grounding in yeah, yeah. some in, in familiar. Yeah, it's interesting. I almost sort of wonder if, if it's not a little bit like people have speculated about with Planetos in A Song of Ice and Fire where like the axis of the planet is tilted or I don't think it's that straightforward. I think it's more of a magical thing that's thrust this world in this place where they have these, you know, 10 year long winters that basically make it impossible for society to get beyond a certain point because so many people die and, and all these things happen. It almost makes me wonder is just, was this planet thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago, more like ours and then something happened i don't know well it's an interesting question because you do have this little pocket of what's familiar to us in shinovar correct which to everyone else in roshar thinks is so strange but they have chickens strawberries grass Mm. all these kind of familiar uh, creatures and plants Mm -hmm. so we know that at least in some place it was like ours. Yeah, and we don't really know if this is the only continent on this planet either. I think you've told me that you... Uh, we don't know from this book. Correct. Yeah, yeah. Unless we want to assume from Kaladin's, you know, midnight sky ride. That, I would not assume. That we've seen everything that, that there is to see. Yeah. But there is one giant landmass yeah, described. I, I, don't, I don't want to make that assumption. I mean, I have no reason... To think there's there are other continents, but I also have no other reason to think there aren't. So I don't know. You know. It's just it's just interesting. I think when we go back in the limited the the little flashbacks and things that we've seen, it doesn't seem like the planet has changed. So at least for thousands of years, it's been this way. Right. Anyway, however, we know that at least a large part of this planet's history was characterized by apocalypse level de- things called desolations. Yeah, which p- wipe out. Yeah, and apparent a, a lot of no, you know. Yeah, and apparently there are things large enough to like take the tops off of mountains and shit. Right. I'm waiting for those fuckers to show up. That's what I'm excited about. Come on, desolations. <laughs> I am I want, you know, I want to see a chasm fiend reach out its giant claw and clip the top of a mountain off. <laughs> then I'll be impressed. <laughs> then you'll be Then impressed. I'll be impressed. Stab a shard bear in the face. Meh. Whatever. <laughs> so I had a couple character notes for this chapter. Um, I thought it was cool. Um, you know, Shalon, we start off with her kind of railing against being confined in the hospital and the thought of going back to her life and going back to her home. And she's not wanting to do that. And before this incident, she was thinking about, hey, maybe I can just like send the soul caster back and just stay here. And Which I thought was a genius idea. Kind of is. But yeah. but then she decides 
here that with given that she now has the perfect excuse to leave and that she now also kind of knows how to use the soul caster or is enough to work it out. Yeah. She really doesn't have any of the the reasons behind staying. And she really pretty selflessly decides she's going to go back and help her family. We also see a crack in Yasna's exterior here and how concerned she is about Shalon. And we find that she's been sitting outside of the hospital waiting to be allowed in to see her. Yeah. That she also has enough guilt over, you know, she assumes that it was the strenuousness of her training that led Shalon to try and kill herself. Yeah. We know that's not true, but she blames herself enough that she she's willing to at least feign breaking bread with Capsule, which she has not been willing to do before. Yeah. And for good reason, apparently. So can we talk about the fact that Capsule freaking has been poisoning Shalon? Yeah, so... I mean, we don't know that at this point, so I guess we can bring that up No, that's in, no, no, in no. chapter 50, but... Uh, we don't have to pretend like we didn't read chapter 50. Right, okay. Um, but yeah, so it looked to me in this chapter like all three of them eat the bread. Right. Yeah, I don't know whether Yasna like, did the old, you know, stuck her tongue against the bottle mm-hmm. and pretend to chug the liquor mm-hmm. like that I learned in college. Um, oh, wow. You never learned that one? No. Yeah, that's how you avoid... That's how you avoid uh, alcohol poisoning when all your asshole friends are like, drink, drink, drink. And you're passing the bottle around and you're like, no, I don't want to. But I also don't really feel like getting in a fight with you. I just stick my tongue. <laughs> just... Well, I always just got the alcohol poisoning. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I was around for your desolations as well. <laughs> it goes both ways, Duchess. <laughs> but hey, you're as free as a bird now. <laughs> but it looked like all three of them ate the jam, and Capsule was... The bread. The, the bread, thank you. Mm. But Capsule was the only one to even get a little bit of the jam inside him. Right. But he seemed to be the one who fell first. Right. So I thought that was interesting. I can only, it doesn't really explain it in, the, in chapter 50. I can really only speculate that maybe because he was the one handling it all the time. I, you know, I don't, I don't know. Well, Shalon only lived because Yasna soul cast true. her blood. True, true, yeah. But it just, it seemed to affect him quicker than everybody else. Having said that, it was like a half a second quicker. So it's not like it was a huge difference. But anyway, the other thing I know, the only other character note I have is that Yasna seems very concerned about her appearance here. And she comes in, you know, with her hair, you know, made up in a very intricate way, face painted, lips painted. And I remember going back and the first time we encountered Yasna, it's sort of mentioning that she was really made up. I don't really recall it since then, which, you know, you're not going to describe a character every time you see them. So that's that's fine. But it just sort of seems interesting to me that she seems to bristle at societal norms 
and what's expected, what's sort of expected of her. But yet she is very traditional in that aspect. I don't know, maybe there's something I'm missing there, but I, I just thought that was an interesting thing. Or, or, I mean, or why she would go through that length to go to the hospital, unless it's, I've heard a couple people sort of speculate that Shalon and Yasna might have a thing for each other. And that that maybe that's why she's going out of her way to dress up. I don't see that, but I don't know. I just, it, it was interesting to me that she made a point about her being really dolled up. So my take on that is that Yasna always looks fly and Shalon really looks up to her. And so sometimes she will mention what she's wearing, what she looks like, the fact mm-hmm. that she's really jealous. She wishes she looked like her, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. I love Yasna and Shalon's relationship, but I don't see it as anything more than big sister, little sister. I didn't see kind it. Kind of thing. Yeah, I didn't and see it either. What I really love about Yasna's character is that she is the re- kind of rebellious, strong character who also likes to dress up. And you almost never see that. And how many times have I complained about it? That's true, yeah. Like, like if a chick is strong and kind of badass, then she's got to like only wear pants, you know, or yeah. only be into fighting and stuff. Yeah. You know, you don't get to see a, a character who like is like, hey, I like being feminine, but I'm also not like a jackass. You know, yeah. I, I, I like, but I also like reading. Like, yeah. You know, so I just really love that, seeing that kind of character. So that was just my take. Like, like Yasna's strong. She's a badass bitch. She likes to wear lipstick. I'm cool with that. So chapter 49 is called To Care. Bridge four is on chasm duty, beginning their training. Kaladin quickly realizes that these are the most fit, training-ready troops he has ever taught. With Teft aiding in training and Lopin, Rock, Dabid, and Shen collecting salvage, the group is well on its way to execute their escape plan. So it's a pretty short chapter. They basically go down in the chasm and start start training. Yeah, I, I didn't have a ton of notes either. There were really only two that I had, and and the first isn't really even about the chapter at all. Right, it's about the poem before it. Oh, so what the what do you have about the snapter? The snapter, yeah. So it, it's clearly a reference to Kaladin. What does it say? I can't I can't remember off the top of my. Head. So it says, "Radiant of birthplace, the announcer comes to announce the birthplace of radiance." So sort of this like weird like palindrome version of a haiku almost. What does it say underneath? Form. Like what are Yasna's it says, notes? Though I am not overly fond of the Ketic poetic form as a means of conveying information, this one by Alan is often quoted in reference to Erethiru. I believe some mistook the home of the radiance for their birthplace. So we have Kaladin called, what, like, son of Tanavast? Mm-hmm. 
And then we also have here in a chapter about Kaladin in the present day, it says Radiant of Birthplace. The announcer comes to announce the birthplace of the, of the Radiance. Mm-hmm. So that tells me first that Kaladin is Paul Atreides. <laughs> He's the Kwisatz Haderach. Muadib. On his mother's side. <laughs> on his mother's side. On his mother's side. <laughs> but we have Son of Tanavast. We don't know who the hell Tanavast is. It's not one of the heralds. Could be one of the radiants. Somebody on our Facebook page, and I, I'm sorry that I don't recall who, I think it may have been Felicity, speculated that Kaladin might be a lost radiant reborn. And this sort of makes it sound like that might be the case. Mm-hmm. And if that's the case, then he is here to announce or find the birthplace of the Radiant. So I think I'm I'm shooting a little ahead of myself with my predictions here. I think he's going to find Erythru. So many predictions. Whew. So... What did you think of Kaladin's training style in this sort of little montage versus when he was beginning to train the Bridgman? You weren't happy with that there. You were you were rolling your eyes at that. Well, I think it, at that point, one, he, he was assuming a degree of authority that he did not have. Right. And that's not the case here. You know, it's a completely different scenario. Right. These people trust him. And he's coming from a position of expertise as well as having earned their respect over time. Now he's freaking Kwisatz Haderach, born of the storms. And, you know, he survived the uh, Choleris storm, you know, the st- and all this stuff. So he's got all this behind him. It's a completely different place. I like that he sort of amended what he had done in the past because he's like, I don't need to, I don't need to tear these guys down. You know, they right. Been he begins by down. building yeah, them up. Exactly. So, so I like it. I mean, um, it's not as though if he had come at them that way from the beginning, it would have been better. He still didn't have the authority at the time. Right. You know, he just shows up and he's like, get up, you maggots. We're going to run around, uh, you know, you would expect him to have done better, but he's also kind of demonstrated his worth to these guys. So, And they're all agreeing to be there and participate in this. They're all there because they want to be. Well, it's the only, I mean, he gave them sort of a, a, a family, a reason to sort of hope, but there was nothing to really hope, to have hope in, to have hope for. And now he's actually giving them albeit a slim chance, some sort of chance of getting out of this alive. Mm -hmm. My favorite part of this chapter was Teft trying to probe Kaladin about whether he was like feeling anything strange. Oh, yeah. He was like, do you ever have um, the feeling that you're light? (laughs) He was like, what? What (laughs) What are you talking about? I thought that was pretty funny. 
the other note I have in this chapter is they talk, and it's just a little short thing in the very beginning where they talk about the floodwaters. And Kaladin says, if these floodwaters didn't drain somewhere, Mm -hmm. then we'd be stepping over canals instead of chasms. And I spent a lot of time puzzling over that. I kept looking for, and I had to be careful online, and I've I've decided I'm not going to look for like maps online anymore Mm -hmm. because I saw a couple things that I don't know what they were, but they looked kind of spoilery, so I just didn't right. click on them. And I stopped, but but I did get I did look through like the maps that we have of the Shattered Plains from the book, and tried to look at the world map that I have, and it does not appear to me that west of the Shattered Plains there's any like big river or anything. Now west there's a bunch of mountains west of the Shattered Plains, and to the west of that there is a big ass river. Uh, but I I don't think that um, I don't think that the plains drain into any kind of river around there. Mm-hmm. So the water drains from the east to the west, and yet there's no obvious place west of there that it drains to, mm-hmm. which causes me to speculate that it must drain into maybe a space down below the chasms, and I. Th- think you know there was some reference in the beginning to there being something some sort of deeper spot like where the men go to just jump off you know the chasm but um but i thought that maybe there was even reference to something kind of even deeper i speculate that there's going to be something sort of below the shattered plains and i think that's our hint all right we also get a little bit of an explanation as to why Rock won't fight. I'm not sure if this was mentioned before, but... No, I don't think so. He he explains that he won't fight because he's not a fourth son. And amongst his people, only fourth sons become soldiers. So something similar to the Shin here, where fighting is the least valued skill. Yeah. And not something that just everybody does. So it's it's a neat contrast to the Alethi. Well, it's especially interesting because I didn't realize this until I started doing the research for this, but the Horn Eater Peaks sit between Yakaved and Alethi, mm-hmm. which you would you would presume based on, uh, you know, what we've learned. He, he's kind of sitting between like two, like the two most warlike nations <laughs> on the continent. And yet it's an area where fighting is not really well prized. It's sort, of, it's sort of interesting that that would be the case. Chapter 50 is called Backbreaker Powder. Shalan awakens after her poisoning to the horrible realization that her theft was discovered and she's lost the soul caster. Yasna returns and rips her a new one, leaving her devastated. However, Yasna agrees to let Shalan return to Yakaved. In parting, Yasna tells Shalan that Kabsal is dead. Apparently, the bread he had been bringing every week was dusted with a powerful poison called backbreaker powder, and the antidote was in the jam. Poor Shalon is left with no career, no soul caster, and no secret assassin boyfriend. No, he really wanted to get that jam in her. Poor Shalon. I got to get that jam in ya. Get the jam up in ya. Open your mouth. 
So so what was the deal with Capsule? Was he completely insincere? Do you think he cared about Shalon? Was he just completely playing her? Oh, I think he was 100% insincere. It you know, we I, I sort of kicked myself for not having suspected it when they're in the gardens and he tries to hide mm-hmm. from the king. He wasn't so much trying to hide from Teravangian, and I suspected it wasn't Teravangian. I suspected it was the, the ardent. ardent that he was walking around with. You know, and he's like, oh, I'm playing hooky, you know, sort of right. sort of gives that excuse. And I figured there would be something more to it, but I just sort of went with it. Mm-hmm. I didn't really, you know, didn't think didn't think it would happen this quick. Anything would happen this quick. Mm-hmm. Certainly didn't think this was the case. But no, I think it was 100% insincere mm-hmm. I think Shalon who we meet as this very naive girl is becoming more worldly but I think Yasna is right I think he 100% played her well Shalon is really in the belly of the beast at this point you know she's really kind of at a all time low and I thought it was interesting that even given that, she still decides not to tell Yasna everything. No, yeah. She does not tell Yasna about her father's soul caster. And no. she very kind of coolly analyzes the situation and thinks, you know, that's not going to make it any more acceptable why I did what I did and it could get my family in trouble. Yeah, I thought her reasoning was sound. I also thought it was interesting that as you mentioned, she is in the belly of the beast. She's 100% at Yasna and Teravangian's mercy. We, we would have expected that she would have had a much worse outcome than this, and I certainly did. But even with all that said, when Yasna's like, who did you do it for? She's like, she's pretty confrontational. She's right. like, is it so hard to believe that I have my own motivations? Mm-hmm. You know, she's a little... She's giving it back a little bit. And we can really see how, how truly wounded Yasna is by Shalon's betrayal. Yeah. I, I think, you know, in looking at their friendship, you realize how very lonely Yasna probably is. Yeah. I mean, here she's got this reputation as this, this harridan, you know. She's this heretic. She doesn't seem to socialize. She doesn't have friends. She's separated from her family. I mean, she seems to be close with her uncle and her brother, but she is separated from them. Doesn't seem to have any women friends at all. And it seems like she and Shalon, here was Shalon, who was able to kind of handle her acerbic nature and and make jokes back at her and kind of provide a, a balance to her very intense personality. So to then have that go sour and have this person betray her, we really see this character impacted. It's really a shame that it had to kind of work out this way because this take the whole soul caster thing out of it. It would have been a great scenario for both of them, particularly for Shalom. Awesome buddy cop pair. Great buddy. Cagney and Lacey (laughs) running around busting, uh, you know, pop collared chads (laughs) everywhere. Can't get into my pants with a plate full of brownies. <laughs> no, it would have been it would have been good. Now, wouldn't have made for a very interesting novel, and so <laughs> and so we have, 
you know, we have to have some confrontation there. But yeah, it, it is sort of unfortunate that it turned out that way. So after all her moralizing with Yasna, Shalon is finally un- unveiled as a thief, as a liar. Do you think she got, she deserves what she got? I think she deserved a lot worse. Deserved a lot worse. Yeah. Yeah. I think she deserved a lot worse. I think it does this whole scene, these whole two chapters in this section, more than anything, serve to really humanize Yasna, in my opinion. Absolutely. What I thought was interesting, too, was that I don't think Shalon, even for a minute, really thought about the potential consequence that she that she could be killed over this. Like, when when Yasna, I mean, she's like, oh, this is such a bummer. I've lost my career, whatever. I don't think it's really real to her that this is something that she could be have been executed for. Well, she mentions it several chapters back. She mentions it, but it doesn't seem like a like a real fear that she has. I don't know if that's because she's very young. She's yeah. naive. You know, when Yasna's like, do you know what my my brother would do if he found like this is this is like war making. Oh yeah, he would go to dis- war decision. with Yakovet. Yeah, yeah, I mean, and, and that just the consequences of this action. I really don't seem like they ever sunk in for Shalom. No, I 100% agree with that. I really don't think, especially the wider circumstances. I do right. think, I mean, I think she recognized that she could be killed over it. She says as much. She's like, yeah, but better to like, just get it over with. I wonder, can you even do something like that if you are constantly worrying about that? Like, could you even bring yourself to steal that soul caster if you were constantly thinking about the fact that you would be killed if you were caught. I mean, even after it was done, though, like when Yasna comes in the room, oh, Shalon yeah. isn't like, oh, crap, I'm going to die. You know, like that doesn't occur to her at all. I feel like she recognized the danger. She, I don't know. I, mean, I, I, I think she probably intellectually, she's not stupid. Correct. Yeah, intellectually, yeah. but it, it's, I don't think that ever really sunk into her. I, I think if I was sitting in there at that bed, I think I think I'd be calling for a bedpan. Yeah. You know, and I don't think I'd be giving it back to Yasna. I'm pretty sure I'd be begging for my life. Yeah, absolutely. You know. So chapter 51 is called Sas Nan. It's a flashback chapter. After killing the shard bearer, Kaladin and his men are being housed in Amaram's compound. They're brought before Amaram. And he asks Kaladin why he rejected the shard blade. But Kaladin can't answer him. Kaladin instead insists on giving the shards to Korib, the most senior of his remaining squad. Instead, Amaram has Korib and the other men killed. Amaram goes to his knee and tells Kaladin that he's sorry. He says that Alethkar will best be served with him holding the shards. But because Kaladin saved his life, Amaram spares him but brands him a slave as the chapter ends. So the other night I was laying in bed, I was getting ready to fall asleep. And I just heard from the other side of the bed, I heard you go bullshit. That's some bullshit, so man. I had to look over and see which chapter you were on. It was this one. It is some bullshit. <laughs> so some bullshit. Please. And, and and all week you won't let me ask you about it. You're like, keep it in your pants, woman. <laughs> Wait till Saturday. 
so, so tell me more. What do you? What, what was your reaction here? So the end of the so the ending of the chapter is that Amaram and all and the Light Eyes kill the remainder of Kaladin's squad in order to keep this secret. They're willing to kill innocent men in order to save this secret. And yet, because of some weird-ass sense of honor, they spare Kaladin and say no one will believe him. Now, I, I agree with them that probably no, that no one will believe them, but I don't, I don't know that I buy... I, I don't know that I buy this idea that your honor prevents you from killing somebody who saved your life, but you have no fucking problem killing everybody else in the squad in cold-ass blood. Because you want the sword? I don't know. It, it's tough. It's tough to believe. Well, let's unpack this a little bit. So first, let's talk about Amaram for a minute. Because we've heard him mentioned as the, the last light eyes with honor, blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah. And, and uh, Kaladin says, you know, he... Well, and we knew that that wasn't... Go- we knew that that wasn't going to last. Right, exactly. However, well, I think what we need to understand is how Amaram views himself. So is he someone who, uh, like Sadius, is going to pay lip service to being an honorable light eyes, being a good leader, but doesn't actually care if he's really seen that way? Do we have enough experience with Amaram? We have very little with Amaram to make that decision. Well, if you let me finish this sentence. I'm sorry, Sorry, go ahead. I will present you. Present present me. Article one. I apologize. <laughs> okay. So what we need to answer is, is Amaram like Sadius, where he doesn't actually care about any of that? He's kind of cynical. Or does he actually see himself that way as, as being better, as being doing things for the greater good? So um, Kaladin talks about serving Amaram because of the honor that he's shown. He lets Spearman share his comfort in the war center during high storms. He insists that his men be well-fed and well-paid, and he doesn't treat people like slime. The only of the light eyes that he's ever met that, that acts this way. And so first off, side note, what a society that like basic decency inspires this level of loyalty. But then we see how Amaram really seems genuinely conflicted about what he is doing to the men. And when Kaladin calls him out for being a fraud and saying, you were supposed to be better than the rest of them, Amaram does not take that well. I think if you had said something like that to Sadius, psh, it would he would not care. I, I do suspect that Sadius would have just killed him. Absolutely. So I believe that Amaram walked into that room fully prepared to kill all of them. He seems, because he seems genuinely conflicted. And what he says to Kaladin is, as he's, first off, he's he's doing the Bond villain thing where he's ex- he's got to explain to Kaladin mm-hmm. why he's morally justified. Okay, Sadius, someone like Sadius would not bother to do that. No. He's going to do what he wants to do. But he's going to take this time to explain to Kaladin why it's actually for the good of Alethkar, for the greater good for him to have this sword. And he says to Kaladin, it took hours to decide, but Rastares is right. This is for the good of Alethkar. So 
Amaram walked into this room being convinced by another Light Eyes, by another High Prince, mm-hmm. that this is what he needed to do. So it's taken another High Prince hours of of convincing. Probably Amaram wanted to do it in the first place, but it's not something that he took lightly. So I believe that Amaram walked in there having been convinced, okay, you have to kill all these guys and take the shards. Like, that's just what you have to do. It's the it's for the good of your men. You know, why should, you know, hundreds die so that because of these five yahoos in there. But when it came down to it and when Kaladin to his face calls him out for being a fraud, for not being the man that he thinks that he is, he just can't bring himself. And so he kind of calls an audible at the last minute in order to deal with that guilt and says, okay, because he makes a big show of saying, by my mercy, you're going to live. He says, you know what? Five guys would be believed, but one guy is not going to make a big difference. I can like assage my guilt by letting this guy live and getting rid of him this other way. Yeah. He's, he's a nice guy. He, he's a nice, he's exactly, that's I actually wrote down. Amaram is a nice guy. He's a toxic nice guy. He's it's a not, toxic nice not guy. Not usually quite this toxic. <laughs> like I understand. Like yes, I remember it mentioning in there that like he had a look of guilt, as though he f- was conflicted about it. So I understand it from that angle. It it's it's one of those things where it's like you can understand it. And still be upset about it. So I guess my, um, what I wasn't understanding from you is you're upset about it. Do you think that it was like poor character writing or was it consistent with this character? Well, I don't, I guess at the time as I'm reading it, I've read through it and I'm not, I'm not as upset as I was when I first read it. Right. Because I've gone back through and I've read the chapter again and I've read through some other things. But at the time I'm thinking, I don't know I don't know enough about Amaram one way or the other for it to be good writing or bad writing. I, I do recognize that there was conversation and I didn't pick up on the Restaurus line until the second time I read it, but I recognize that like Amaram felt bad about it. But it's it just sits it's hard for me to accept somebody being evil enough and pragmatically evil enough and real realpolitik enough to just cut down everyone in cold blood to hide this fact yet not kill the plot armored character that is the part that was frustrating to me. If it was Sadius, if Sadius, if it had, if it had been Sadius in that room, then I 100% think it would have been bad writing. The fact that Amaram did it, and we don't know as much about him. He had a, like, it's, it's enough for me not to look at it and say it's bad writing. It's still really frustrating as a reader. Yeah, I would have to argue if you would would be saying that this is plot armor. Well, because it's tough, it's tough to say that about Kaladin because he always seems to 
survive these things. It's pretty much put out there that he feels his curse is he always survives. There's obviously something going on there. And again, I truly believe that... But I would argue, I would counter-argue that with saying, all we know about this cat is that he is a basic version of Seth. Why does he have the the plot armor, you know? I mean, I guess he saw the face of Bo. I mean, Seth is still alive, too. True, but... After after tearing up an entire castle of Alethi warriors, I mean... But again, why? It's more to the, like, but why has he earned it? Like, has he earned being Kaladin Stormblessed? I mean, I think the character's a good character. I'm not trying to take anything away from him. I still think he's got plot armor. And I can't really, like, I see your arguments, and I don't think they're bad arguments. I don't disagree with them. That's just how I felt in the moment reading it. I felt like it was a bullshit move. We didn't know enough about Amaram. To really say one way or the other whether it was a good or bad character, particularly on the first read, but it just, I don't know, it just sort of struck me as a, as being unsatisfying. Well, where do you stand with it now? I'm less, I'm less upset about it now. I mean, Mm -hmm. having read through it now, I have a better, I feel a little bit more like when you read it carefully you can get to see that Amaram is conflicted. And if we learn more about this guy later and, you know, like it, it could very much, he could have a, I mean, there are all kinds of ways that this could resolve itself in satisfying ways. We're not at the end of the story. So, you know, I, I make these sort of off the cuff judgments knowing that I could very well be proven wrong later. But it it didn't sit well with me when I first read it. I'm less concerned about it now. I still think this section was awesome, and I still enjoyed this section. So it's not like it robbed me of being able to enjoy the section. Right. I think overall, when I look at the whole arc of Kaladin refusing the shard, being made a slave, and being sent away... I think this was overall a pretty satisfying ending. That part of it I didn't like. Yeah, I can't make you, I can't make you like it. No, and that's okay. And you don't <laughs> you know, and you you don't have to. I kind of wonder if see you know f- more obviously about the story and right. how it sort of resolves it and I'm wondering if there are things that happen after the fact that cause it to sit well with you. But my question to you would be, when you read it the first time, did no, you feel that way? No, it did way? not bother me. It didn't bother It did me. not okay. bother me that like the protagonist of the story didn't die on page 800 because <laughs> I just was like, okay, he's not going to die. Well, I didn't mean, he's on the cover of the next book. I'm sorry, spoiler. Calvin is on the cover of the next book. <laughs> I, I mean, I didn't suspect that he was going to die <laughs> considering it happens in a flashback. But it's more the... Some weird zombie shit going on. <laughs> well, it's I mean, it's not like it's unheard of, you know. Um, but um, it's more the way he got spared. They were like, we're going to spare you because you saved my life, but I have no problem killing all your friends in front of you in cold so, blood. So, but here's the thing, though. 
I guess for me, that sat well because the Alethi culture is very eye for an eye. It is very mm. put on this face of honor. So Kaladin's men ran. Kaladin was the only person. I mean, Amaram's honor guard ran yeah. when he was attacked. Kaladin is the only person in the entire army that ran towards and then saved Amaram's life. An Alethi nobleman would not have taken that lightly. And it would have been incredibly difficult for him to order the death of someone who had saved his life like that. And I understand like societies that have conflicting values. Right. Like I understand, you know, being complete, like a society that like I completely condone murder, but not in this weird, rare ass. Right. Like, because we have, we have that stuff all throughout our own society right. and other societies and cultures that we've seen. So like, I, I get, you know, that, there's not sort of a moral absolutism, you know, right. that we're playing with here, right? Totally get that. I just don't, didn't feel like I knew enough about or know enough about Alethi culture or Amaram to read that and be like, oh, yeah. I mean, we can go back and forth and say the same things yeah. to each other, but <laughs> I guess bottom line is I, I picked up enough of that or at least i extrapolated mm -hmm. enough of that that it, i was able to breeze past this it didn't bother me um not so much for you but yeah that's okay too no it bothered me but I, well fine i'm gonna go on so I think i'll be all right <laughs> a really important theme uh in the book in this chapter in particular is redemption you know we see kaladin really seeking redemption for losing tian and um, redemption and honor are touched on over and over again. I forget where I was going with that. <laughs> I, I can't. I can't answer that. <laughs> I cannot help you there. Damn it, Chad. <laughs> oh, okay. One other note in this chapter. All First right. of all, there's a windspread flitting around. Yeah, which we we think maybe sill. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Also, so uh, we have mention of Rastares as being the high prince who is yeah and who convinced Amaram to take the shard. He was the one who Sadius and Dalinar were trying to like try to kind of corner and make sure make sure he was loyal to the king. With his wood purchases? Yes, and oh, he right, is okay. also one of three names that Gavilar yeah. mentions to Seth right before Seth kills him. The first name is Thydekar. Which comes up in this chapter as well. It does. Along so, with the, what, the ghost hunters? or um, So when Amaram walks into the room, he is saying, why would Thydekar risk this, but who else would it be? The ghost bloods are growing more bold, and we'll have to find out who he was. And do we know anything about him? So they're talking about the shard bearer. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the he the reply from his whoever is just that he was Vaden. He's Vaden. We yeah. don't know who he was. We don't recognize him. So, um, so that's just a, a another layer. But it's interesting yeah. that when Gavilar, when Seth is about to kill him, 
Gavilar says, you can tell Thydekar, you know, blah, blah. And Seth is like, who's Thydekar? But that was his, that was Gavilar's number one. Someone's killing me. It's, the, it's yeah, this it's guy. The, yeah. So now we know that a little more Thydekar is some group called the Ghost Bloods. And well, the other thing that, that does soften my, my stance on Amram a little bit is there's also a line where Amram says, Spearman, you cannot understand the weight that is on my shoulders. Mm -hmm. And it does sort of cross my mind that there's got to, I mean, I hope, uh, I'm trying to, to be positive here. I see people like Elicar, who's just like, it's bro central. It's like, mm-hmm. n- like all Alethi society is just about fratting out, buddy. <laughs> yeah, that's it. He's got no no worries on his shoulder. Just gonna bro out with my bros. <laughs> you know, gonna have the, let the girls have their speed drawing contest. I'm just gonna bro out with my bros, right? And we're gonna get some gem hearts and eat some shitty food, <laughs> and that's it. And then we see what Dalinar sort of struggles with, right? Mm-hmm. I'd like to think that with all the weird shit that's going on, like there's got to be somebody in a Lethe society that is like trying to wrestle with some of these bigger picture things. Mm-hmm. But but the contrast to that is that what we've seen of a Lethe society so far has been nothing but bro. Bro, mm-hmm. bro, bro. Bro all the time. Mm-hmm. Nobody cares about. There's no rewarding for anybody looking mm-hmm. any deeper than anything. Jem mm-hmm. Hart. Except for Yasna. Except for Yasna. Um, but it's expressed how much of a fucking weirdo she is. Right. So I'd like to think that maybe Amaram is like, maybe he has caught on to like there's some shit going on and he's trying to figure things out. But that seems so in contrast with everything else we've seen from the Alethi. So I I really don't know. Mm -hmm. Well, we'll just have to keep reading. Adolin's concerned about bitches and shard blades. And clothes. ain't nothing but bitches and clothes. Bitches and clothes. Bitches and clothes. Grab my shard blade and grab some hose, bitches and clothes. Like that's, he's just walking around. I love Adolin. Not like. You know what? Just like Yasna's not afraid to be girly and also be like badass smart lady. Okay. Adolin can be like masculine dueling master and still like a nice jacket. Uh, Yeah. You know, I mean, I just, I dig it. I don't have a problem with that. What I have a problem with is that, like, this society around which clearly all these weird fucking things are happening. And, and nobody cares. 37% of his brain is consumed with his jacket. It's so like, true. You know, like, so, like, if Amaram is, like, the one guy going, what the fuck's going on around here? Like, <laughs> like I'm willing to kind of come <laughs> around to his side, but, like, but it's that's just not what we see from these cats, mm-hmm. you know? Like, they just don't seem, they seem so fucking oblivious. Mm-hmm. That's the one, it's one of the things that has, so far has made this book so fucking frustrating. Mm-hmm. Not, not that this is unique in fantasy literature, you know? I mean, it's not, you know? Um, 
and you can kind of un- understand it. I mean, cultures do get blindsided by shit, you know? Well, yeah, if something is normal to you, I mean, you live in a in a culture where there's spren everywhere and freaking mystical ginormous storms that come through and destroy everything. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. things start to seem normal. Well, and also, you know, as a writer, you're trying to sow conflict and seeds of mystery and all these things to give people a reason to be interested. Because if life really was nothing but bitches and hoes or bitches and clothes for Adolin, we wouldn't have made it 700 pages into this book, right? You got to give us something to chew on. Uh, But the Alethi are just oblivious to it. You know, they're just... Well, I mean, think of it too. You know, they've got this this whole idea of the desolations um, that they're aware of, but nobody really talks about. But they've been told, and it's been just ingrained in their culture, that they won that battle. Nothing like that's ever going to happen. I mean, think of our story of, you know, Noah and the Ark and the Flood. Yeah, yeah. It would be like today, us being going around being like, Oh crap! I hope that doesn't happen again. You know, yeah. like we I'm just, not going to believe Steve Carell when he starts building an ark. We just, we just wouldn't. You know, yeah. we wouldn't worry about that. So for them, it was that long ago. Yeah. You know. Mm-hmm. Oh, I hope that doesn't happen again, though. <laughs> I don't know. Have you seen the way it's been raining around here? Oh. <laughs> it hasn't been forty days. It's been like seventeen. It's fucking ridiculous. It's been crazy. It has been crazy. Are you ready to talk about some listener interactions? Yes. Let's let's stop yelling at each other. I don't like it's the way... It's okay, kids. <laughs> Mommy and Daddy still love each other very much. I don't like the way that Amaram has come between us. <laughs> Why don't you marry him then? <laughs> Earlier today, we put out on Facebook and and Twitter our announcement that we were going to be recording. Give us your questions. So we have some questions. So Daryl at Sea Delicious says, if you had a shard blade, would you use it or keep it secret for emergencies? Why are you laughing? I don't know, because I I was just, (laughs) I was thinking about that one really nice pair of shoes that I got. Yeah. (laughs) That I can't bring myself to wear, but sometimes I take them out and I just smell them. (laughs) I'd probably do that with a shard blade, too. Oh, yeah. I think I would definitely stand in a room and look at it. Just let it drip. Absolutely. Sinuously. I would put it in my tea. Just put the tip of it in the tea. Just the tip. Make it cold. Just the tip. Look, I just want to put the tip in here. Come on, baby. Be easy. So, I don't know. I, I, I mean. I mean, I don't know how useful it is other than, you know, burning think- the soul out of people. <laughs> <laughs> Look, there's some motherfuckers I'd like to burn the soul out of. All right. <laughs> it's kind of dark. I mean, when you think about it, you know, I, I think it kind of depends on what my role in the society is. I feel like if I'm in, if I'm in a role where I'm in constant physical danger, then I'm probably going to keep it a secret 
if I'm in a role where, uh, you know, if I'm like Adolin, I'm not keeping that shit secret. Like, fuck no. Oh, like, what's this? It's a shard blade. I'll he put my one, shard blade. one each hand, baby. Like, I mean. <laughs> no, I mean, right now. I think I think he means if we had a shard blade in this house. Ah. Uh, right now. Oh, gotcha. Okay. No, I'd show that off. Show <laughs> yes, the you would. I would drive in my beat up nasty old Prius down the street. Whacking weeds with it. <laughs> like swinging it around, be like, hey, everybody. You'd be like the guy on the cover of the US version of this book, which who bugs the crap out of me. Oh, just standing there? Because he's just standing there and he's just holding this shard blade out in the air like. It's shard blade semaphore. He's, he's Look at passing- my soul. <laughs> He's passing signals He's, across. He, yeah, it looks like there's a guy, you know, on the other side of the yeah, chasm, yeah, yeah. whatever, like, like, okay, maybe he's trying to point in a direction, but in his other hand, he has a giant fucking flag. Like, yeah. why would you <laughs> Seems summon a little your shark? More. He's yeah. like, look, oh, look over here. It's like this those. Way. It's like those marketing shots where they stage it, and it's so obviously staged, but you have to show off the goods, you know? I guess so. You know, that's, It bugs me, though. Oh, yeah, no. Good question, though. I think I would show it off around town. (laughs) I definitely think I would. Brian McClure says, what do you think about the warning Kaladin received in his dream? I mean, we talked... Odium reigns. Yeah, we talked about that a little bit. We talked about that a little bit. It's so difficult for me to say when you drop these random, like... Oh, it's a polar bear on a jungle island. Uh, mm-hmm. wh- what do you think of the polar bear? I'm like, I don't know. It's a fucking polar bear. Like, it's weird. Like, I don't, I don't know. Like, I-, I do think this Odium is the big bad. Like, I think, I think he's the big bad. I think he's the bad dude. I think um, it plays a little bit into my prediction. So, I definitely, I definitely think it's a legit like, dude. You better watch out for this guy. But I don't know what to say beyond that because it's the first time we've heard of this cat. Right. You know, what I will say is if you're standing in front of Odium and he's standing there with a wife beater on and he's got a big chain, like a big length of chain. It and says he's, Odium on it. <laughs> no, not not a necklace, but like okay. an actual like toe chain. Okay. And he says, I bet you can't knock this chain off my shoulder. Don't try to knock the chain off his shoulder. <laughs> It's a trap. It's not going to end well for you. (laughs) Brian also says, what's your impression of Shen and what part do you see him play in the future of the story? We didn't talk about him too much other than him being a Parshman. And his name being dumb. And his name being dumb. (laughs) I I sort of took it at face value that what... Kaladin says, I think they're trying to see mm-hmm. what's going to happen. Yeah. Is kind of the way I looked at it as well. I do think it'll be interesting to see. And they didn't go on a bridge run with this cat yet. It'll be interesting to see what happens if when they go on a bridge run. Will the Parshendi fire at him? Will they not fire at him? What will he, what will the Parshman do? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that part is interesting. I'm a, I'm a little bit curious to see if these guys will be able to get anything out of him about their society or figure anything out or if they will come across Parshendi and the way the Parshendi react 
to them will give us some more evidence. So I think it's going to be a tool that we're going to find something else out about mm-hmm. the Parshandi and the Parshman. Um, but that's that's what I'm hoping for anyway. Cool. Uh, Susan King says, what are your thoughts on the soul casters that Yasna now has? Well, I guess she now sort of has two. Two. Yeah. The the broken one that Shalon had, which she made the switch. Mm-hmm. And now she has her original one. So she'll be double fisting. Oh, yeah. Basically. <laughs> like pew, 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 pew. Well, I wonder if she'll be able to repair it. If, right. Because she knows more about it. Right. She'll be able to, to fix it. Or if it's one of those things where like once it's broken, it's broken. Right. Uh, you know, we I don't think we know. But like freaking Iron Man over here. But you know, if like if later we see uh, Yasna being like, you know, I've decided, Ardent, uh, you Ardentia, that you're right, and I think I'm just going to turn my soul caster mm. in, like you know, then we'll know. <laughs> right. Know that. Well, she wouldn't even have to fix it; she could just give him the broken one. Right. So I don't know. I don't know if that'll come up. Not something I've really thought about. Eric Allgaier says, "Why does my pee smell like asparagus?" Well, Eric, when a boy and an asparagus love each other very much, you were going to say that? Did I steal your line? No, no. You, I didn't steal. You just, it's just weird that my brain thought that right as you said it. Sometimes you got to. It's gotta, eerie sometimes. Sometimes you got to eat the asparagus, man. <laughs> but he does ask a serious question. He says, if a new book comes out, in one of the series that we've already started, so Doors of Stone or um, the fourth book in the Gentleman Ambassadors, I forget the name of right now, will it be part of the podcast? If so, will Liz read it in advance of Chad in order to preserve the dynamic of the podcast? Ooh. I've thought about this. I, sus- I suspect, well, one, yeah, it absolutely will. If we, If Doors of Stone comes out like... I mean, it's not going to. If it comes out next month, we stop, we finish Way of Kings, we read Doors Stone, and then we resume right. the rest of the Stormlight Archive. Yeah. When a, when a new book comes out, that I think that's going to take precedence. We're not going to stop a book that we're in. Right. But at the next logical spot, we would read it. And yeah, because you, you can read a thousand page book in a couple days. So yeah, you'll read it ahead of time. I mean, when doors of stone comes out, there's not going to be a power on this earth. that's going, that's going to keep me from reading it as soon as possible. That would be very, I, wonder, I, I would probably just tear it up. Yeah. I do suspect, and I don't know how you would feel about this, but I do suspect of when winds of winter comes out, that I'll probably read that one first. So we may flip that around because you have read um, that series. You know a lot more about that series than than I do. I've read them all. Every time a new um, book comes out, I'll read up to that book as a refresher. But you've read them again, again, over and over. And you've read the Duncan Egg novellas. Mm. You you know a lot more about that. So... Winds of Winter, I think, would be a good one for us to flip the dynamic. Yeah, I think so. I think so. But yeah, that is that is my intention. If we read enough unfinished series, eventually 
one of these authors will write the next book. Well, and when you look at the Stormlight Archive, Brandon Sanderson has been taking about four years to get yeah, this each one's one a little out. slower than right because yeah. they're so long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's so much continuity. I mean, I know he has editors working on that as well, but um, but yeah, an Oathbringer just came out this year, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I think I'm pretty sure it was. Ago. I'm pretty yeah, sure yeah. it was. It was this year that it came yeah. out. So it's going to be a couple of years, probably before the next Stormlight book comes out. So who knows where we'll go next? Um, yeah, I, I'm not even really thinking about that. But I'm def. But we will definitely pick up any books that are like new for certain. Right. I, I mean, our intention, I think, is to do uh, Words of Radiance and Oathbringer in the podcast next we'll wrap up way of kings i believe episode 74 will be our last episode in way of kings and then it's what was it 15 episodes that we did this this one i don't know something something like that that. um so that's the plan yeah and then there's a like a novella between two and three i think you said yes edge dancer will definitely which is just it's awesome. Yeah, I mean, I it's think... one of my I, favorites. I like these books so far well enough that I definitely want to continue. I think this is working for our podcasting much better than the Gentleman Bastard series did. As much as I enjoyed reading those books, they're tougher to podcast. That would be the only fourth book that I would... I would be like, oh, how do we want to do this? But I still think we would cover it. Maybe just not in as many episodes. Yeah, I think we would just, you know cover it in less episodes yeah sort of like we did when we once we sort of figured that out that uh it was tougher to read those books there's just not as much to speculate on it's just a different style of storytelling but we would also really love as much listener feedback as possible um regarding what books you want to hear us talk about um or if there are movies or tv shows you want to hear us talk about um what should we do for our 100th episode? It's a couple months away, but... Yeah, good question. But throw some ideas at us. We would definitely take some ideas for our 100th episode. You know, it, it, it's it's tough. It's tough for me to think about it, but that's really... A few months. Like, yeah. I mean, well, I mean, probably, you know, half a year away. Probably next spring or something like that. But really not that far in the grand scheme of things. Something to think about. Eric also says, any opinions on the first law so far? Have you read that series? You told me you. Yes. Yeah. Is yeah. there really anything in the genre you haven't read? Oh, lots. I mean, lots. <laughs> Are you sure? Because <laughs> I'm looking at our bookshelf. Um, I- I'm actually just finally kind of getting... Mm-hmm. Uh, into into the first law because mm-hmm. I told you I had to restart right, it like yeah. three times, right? So I think I'm on like page 90 or something now and mm-hmm. things are just starting to actually kind of happen. Yeah. But I, I'm really digging it. It's good. Joe Abercrombie's great. I like his writing style. Mm-hmm. I do like his writing style quite a lot. Um, so yeah, I'm digging it so far, but I'm not far enough into it yet to really, um, like nothing super cool has happened yet. Mm-hmm. I'm still very much in that you know, first act setting everything up, you know, sort of thing. But yeah, I'm digging it. Are you ready for some predictions? Yes. All right. So some of these we have already sort of covered in in part or 
or at least discussed to some degree going through it. But uh, but I do have a number of predictions. So the first one is the Oath Pact is broken, and that means the return of the Desolations, which we already said. Right. Uh, I do think the enemy mentioned in the prelude is Odium. Mm-hmm. I think the Black Piper that Sen mentions is also Odium. Mm-hmm. I think that Shard Blades are evil. Hmm. I think that they are not... I think they come from a bad place. They're swords that were left alone too long. They didn't get the right upbringing. They're maybe not bad swords. They're just untrained swords. <laughs> they're the pit bull of swords. Um, can't rap for shit they can't. No, um, I, I, I do think shard blades are, are bad. I think that the shards themselves are tied to different gods. I think there's a bunch of demigods out there. And they're different shards. They talk about Odium being the 16th, and I Mm -hmm. think the 16th shard. Mm -hmm. And I think in this case, that is evil. Maybe not all of them, Mm -hmm. but this one is. Mm -hmm. So I think shard blades come from Odium. Mm -hmm. I think Tien was killed by a light-eyed officer underneath of Halal. Mm Mm-hmm. I think that Kaladin and Bridge Four will find Arithuru. Mm-hmm. I think Arithuru is in the Shattered Plains. I'm thinking that it's buried beneath the Shattered Plains, mm-hmm. probably like under the tower somewhere. It's kind of what I'm thinking. And then I think there's something more to Teravangian than what's on the surface, though I don't have any idea what it would be. So those are my predictions. And didn't you have one about, like, an alternate? Oh, yeah, I do think, yeah, I think that the, um, thank you for reminding me, yeah, I think that whatever place that Kaladin saw and Shallan saw tell me that there are like different versions Mm -hmm. you know and i think that dark sphere that we got is like a is like the the shadow side kind Mm -hmm. of version of a of a storm sphere Mm -hmm. on this world but yeah i feel like there's sort of a weird bizarro rashar Mm -hmm. uh or or a connection to like another plane of existence Mm mm-hmm Which would, um, which would also, it would explain a lot of the things that are going on. So, so yeah, I do think there's, I think Bizarro Rashar exists. I do not think that Rashar is flat, however. Okay. I don't. Good. I think that's crazy. You're not a flat Rasharan. No, I'm not a flat Rasharan. <laughs> Listen, if you, if you send a, a wind, runner <laughs> up into the air on a flat Rochar, he's just going to drift sideways off the side of the planet. Like <laughs> it doesn't work. It doesn't work. So that is all I have. This has been a very long episode. One of the longest ever. You're falling asleep on me. Not really. I just need another Capri Sun. <laughs> Listen, that's, that's, Four is too many in one night, right? 
Don't let this don't let this Capri Sun become between our marriage. All right. Do you have anything else? No, sir. All right. Good night, everybody. Good night, everyone.